The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk here on Podcast One. I am your host, Mitch LaFond, and I have got a great, great episode for you today. Tons of guitarists from the band, well, formerly. I guess of Megadeth, we have Marty Freeman talking about his new album, Wall of Sound, and formerly of Guns N' Roses, but currently in Art of Anarchy and Sons of Apollo, it is Ron Bumblefoot Thal talking about their new album, Psychotic Symphony, and then at the end of it, from the Sex Pistols, huh? Come on, Megadeth, Guns N' Roses, Sex Pistols, that's a show, that's a show. Uh, I have got Paul Cook uh, with his new band, or new old band, The Professionals. They have a new album out called What in the World. So there you go. Tons of great, great content. Just before that, a couple of notes. Uh, It is only October 2017, but I am declaring right here, right now, that L.A. Guns' missing piece, the missing piece, the new album that's out on Frontiers record, is the rock album of the year. It is absolutely wonderful. From top to bottom, um, there's nothing wrong with it. So if you were an old-school rock guy from the 80s, this album is for you. And if you're a new rock guy, this is just a great rock album. So Missing Peace, L.A. Guns, and so congratulations to uh, Tracy Guns and Phil Lewis for having come up with an album that has put an incredibly big smile on my face uh, from the moment I got it. So, uh, bravo. And um, there you go. So before I move on to uh, Marty Freeman, who's going to be leading off this uh, episode, I just want to quickly, quickly mention festivals. And I'd like for you to head over to the Rock Talk Facebook or the Twitter at Mitch LaFon, so M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. And I just want to talk about festivals. I have been to... A ton of festivals in the last few years and I'm not going to start naming names because that's not the point but it just seems to me as though they are getting less organized more chaotic and just not special you know you you look back at the California Jam or Cal Jam and the Us Festival and Woodstock and Day on the Green and you know even Bonnaroo and, and, and festivals like that and they put together Headliner after headliner after... I mean, look at Cal Jam, for example, or Us Festival. The band that was playing at 1 o'clock in the afternoon was as much a legitimate headliner as the band that was coming on at 9 o'clock at night. Now, there are festivals in the middle of cow fields, literally, cow fields, uh, where the backstage area is literally a barn. And it is run by people who don't have a clue. And it's just a whole bunch of nobody, 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 nobody. Seven o'clock, sort of somebody. Eight o'clock, kind of somebody. Nine o'clock, ah, we have sort of a kind of headliner. And I'm just baffled. I mean, what what has happened? You know, not everything is a festival. It It is certainly nice that the music is out there. And it's certainly nice that the music exists and stuff. But, 
I think it might be time to dial it back and maybe go back to those days where we have a Cal Jam and there's one day and there's one month and we sort of all look forward to it and we all get out of our homes and we drive and fly and take a boat to this area uh, like we did for Woodstock, like we did for the US Festival, like we do for Day on the Green or did. And we have festivals that have you know, 10 legitimate headliners that start at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, run to, you know, all night, rather than there's a festival in my town, your town, the town's town, the, the, the next door town, your neighbor's town, and, and it just doesn't end. And the, the quality of bands on there just seems to depreciate every year, but... More so, because bands are bands, and, and everybody has a right to make money and the whole thing and get out there and tour. But the quality of the festivals, the organization of the festivals, the, 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 how the media is treated, the catering, the, the fan experience, there just really seems to be too many. So, anyway, I just want to know out there, those listening, do you agree? Have we gotten to a point where there are just too many festivals and it, should we really go back to maybe like there's 10 festivals in the United States and that's because if you look at Europe you know there's Hellfest and there's Wacken and there's this and that and they seem to really have it down to an art and a science and when you head over to a European festival you get an experience I mean you get a real legitimate experience when you head to a festival in Vermont, for example, like I recently was in September, you get a lot of nothing. I mean, literally nothing. So, I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, listen, I have this tendency to ramble, so I've rambled on too long. But just please head over to the Facebook Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon or at Twitter with Mitch LaFon and just tell me, do you think we've gotten to a point where there are just too many festivals and that anybody who throws three bands together now calls it a festival when it really is not and do we need to start scaling back or do we need to be as fans just more selective and say okay listen this one in new york i'll go to and this one in pennsylvania i'll go to but that one in whatever place where eh, i'm not too sure about the bands man maybe i'll skip it um anyway all right uh enough um what do you call it? Pontificating? There's a word for you. Uh, enough pontificating. Let us get over to Marty Freeman. And we talk a lot about his new CD, Wall of Sound, and his style of playing. But we also talk about framing. He re we really go off on this wonderful tangent about how to frame a song, how to frame an album, how to frame uh, a musical piece and all that. So without further ado, the one, the only live from Japan, well, at least it was when I taped it, Marty Friedman. We are speaking with Marty Freeman. The new album is Wall of Sound. Marty, a great uh, great pleasure to talk to you. It's my pleasure talking to you, man. Yeah, so talk to me about putting together this album and, and going the, well, the instrumental route and then also having that one vocal track on there. Well, I, I never really set out to make it an instrumental or an instrumental with vocals or or any any kind of overly uh, conceived idea of uh, the whole layout of the record. I just knew that I was going to put the best material that I had on it, whether it be vocal, whether it be instrumental. And it just turned out that way. And, um, you know, I'm not really a big uh, 
uh, not too knowledgeable about the, the genre of instrumental music. I don't know if there are rules where you need to keep it instrumental and keep vocals out of it. And I just wanted to put the best thing I could. And on my last record, Inferno, there was a couple songs with vocals on it. And uh, it didn't seem to bother me um, to go between instrumental and vocals. So uh, a wall of sound, we wound up with one vocal song and uh, I really liked the way it came out. And um, yeah, I, I don't really have a, <laughs> a a really good answer for that. You could right. probably edit, edit this last boring right. answer. I just, you know. No, but, but you've described the creative process of uh, as being mostly uh, dealing with 18 months of dealing with the same music and hating it most of the time. And then, so, so talk to me about how do you decide, you know, you know, when you're doing a song with vocals or you're putting together a Megadeth song or a Kiss song or whatever, you can sort of hit, see where those parts hit. How do you decide instrumentally what makes it complete and what goes, oh, okay, this is what I keep and this is what I have to sort of cast aside. Well, you're kind of right about hating it most of the time, but, uh, I'm usually loving it for about the first month or so. That's the thing. Um, you know, when you come up with something, it's fresh and it's new and you like it and it's fun to play, get under your fingers and all that. And demo sounds great. You're just loving it for that first month. And, and, uh, what I've learned over 13 of these solo albums is, uh, if something lasts for longer than a month, then it's probably better than something that kind of loses its loses its flavor after about a month or so. So uh, what I did on Inferno, which really served me well, was live with the stuff for a year, a year and a half. And I dumped so many things about halfway through the process, you know, things I absolutely loved two, three months in and worked so hard on doing so many demos of it. And then, you know, year in, you know, it's not as good as it was. And I want stuff that's going to last a long, long time. So, uh, it's hard to throw away your babies like that, but, uh, sometimes you got to do it for the, for the better of the whole cause. And, um, on wall of sound in particular, I knew that I was going to spend a lot of time on it. So I, I made sure that, uh, I didn't have any unnecessary emotional attachments to anything just because I worked really hard on the demos or whatever, you had to be super honest with it. You know, it was great when it first came out, but it's not kicking my ass anymore. I've got to start again on something else. And it's kind of like girls, you know, <laughs> right? That honeymoon period is fantastic. And, uh, you know, you think it's going to be that way forever, but, uh, sometimes it is. And sometimes it isn't. And you want your album to be a collection of the things that really last a long time. And that really still cool eight, nine months down the line. Yeah. And, um, you know, I do, I do want to ask you a couple more questions about the album, but I just want to jump ahead here for a second because you have made some comments recently about Jimi Hendrix and Ace Frehley. And what I took away from the Jimi Hendrix comments were you talked about a love for Uli John Roth, formerly of the Scorpions. And I got a, an email, actually, from Uli this morning, and you played with him in 2008 at uh, the Nakano Sun Plaza in um, Japan, in Tokyo. Right. Um, Talk to me about that experience, because here's here's a guy, if I gather, was sort of somebody you looked up to, you really enjoyed his style. What was that like, that experience, sharing a stage with him? And, and what was it about him that made you go, yeah, the, I need to pick up the guitar. I like what this guy does. Oh, Uli, um, in my very, very formative years, Uli was the guy who I heard and 
I decided that I didn't want to just be um, just a straight ahead guitar player, which I was completely happy with until I heard his playing. I was in a band, uh, a band called Deuce with my junior high friends and high school friends, and we were kicking ass and just having a blast. We were like, you know, little rock gods and stuff. And I thought, this is how it goes. This is great. We just uh, have fun. And and um, then I heard Uli, and I heard the new levels that he was taking rock guitar, and it was just speaking to me. It was making me feel emotions, different emotions than I was used to feeling. You know, I was used to just like, yeah, kick ass, kick ass, rock, which is fine. I love that. But then when I heard Uli, there was just so much more, and I'm like, wow, I should... I owe it to myself to at least try to explore what I could possibly be capable of and uh, not just be another rock and roller, which which was totally fine with me and totally fine even now for anybody. But it, when I heard Uli, I was inspired. I was inspired to uh, at least experiment more with uh, more interesting and more romantic things. Yeah, and, and I love Uli. I mean, he's he's just one of the nicest guys you could ever meet and, and hang around with. But the irony, though, is that Uli sort of attributes all of his guitar prowess to Jimi Hendrix. So it's sort of like, here's this guy who's one removed from Jimi, and yet you don't have that same appreciation for Jimi Hendrix, which is interesting to me. Well, I mean, uh, this is the way it goes. I mean, uh, you should really never... <laughs> pay too much attention to the personal words of your idols. <laughs> and uh, I'm saying this to the people who uh, are fans of mine as well. I mean, because you're going to be let down and, and it's not really, it's not really a let down, but um, here's the thing. Uh, people are people and they all have separate experiences that shape their lives, separate things, separate sounds, separate, complete experiences um every single guitarist that i admire so much uli included is a devout devout hendrix fanatic and they just tell me how fantastic the guy is and i just wasn't around to see that happen uh, i just didn't get it myself and i and, and you know i respect their opinions and i certainly respect Jimi hendrix and his music and his legacy and uh it's just i'm just not a fan of it it's like Coke or Pepsi, you know, I like Coke, someone else likes Pepsi, it's no big deal. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Um, now, you had the, the Wallace Sound tour that came through uh, in August. Are you going to come back to North America at any point, or was this sort of like, here's a sort of this one and done, we, we've done this tour, and now I'm, I'm back in Japan, or where do you see the tour oh, going? Oh, we, we're going to do more. I okay. mean, uh, I do so much things in Japan, so many things in Japan that it's really hard to get away to do like a six month tour of any place. So I do it kind of like in smaller doses, maybe one month or one month or so at a time. Um, on Inferno, I wound up doing 70 shows over two years, you know, so it's kind of spread out. So the first run of wall of sound happened, uh, in August and, um, we're going to do some more runs over the next, uh, you know, few seasons. And uh, this record is going to take a long time to get everywhere onto, but it is so important to me to play everywhere for Wall of Sound because, you know, I say this every time, but I, I mean it more and more as as the records come out. This is really the record I was 
born to make and I really want to play it for everybody. And just seeing that reaction on people's faces when we played this stuff live in America was just mind boggling. And uh, I really look forward to playing in Canada with it. Yeah. Canada was one of the best shows on the Inferno tour and um, everywhere. And we haven't even played in Japan yet on this stuff. So uh, I'm really excited. You know, we're going to do more American stuff. We're going to do South America, hopefully Europe as well. And uh, it's going to be a long long tour with uh you know a lot of breaks in it but uh my fans have been patient with me so far so i really appreciate that yeah they really have now um another person that i had a a a conversation with today is is a guy named dean castronovo who of course played on uh, some of the cacophony stuff and by the way he he says to say hello to you you talked to him today how cool is that yeah dean dean and i text each other almost every day I, i love dean he's he's just a great guy Great, great guy. Fantastic, yeah. And so he, so he, he wishes you well, uh, and he says to say hello. And I wish him well as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but talk to me about this cacophony band. Here you are in a band with Jason Becker, and at at the time you were sort of both hot shot guitarists that hadn't established themselves fully yet. Um, talk to me about how you sort of made room for each other on those albums, and how you decided who played what, and and. You know, why not just say, hey, you go do your thing and I'll go do my thing. How did this band get together where these two guys were just, I mean, it's like having two lead guitarists, right? So um, just talk to me about that band. And, of course, Jason. You know, well, we love Jason. Jason, of course, is uh, my complete inspiration to wake up every morning. He's just uh, the ultimate, ultimate guy. And not just a guitarist, not just a musician, just the ultimate guy and role model but um when i first met him i didn't want anything to do with the guy <laughs> um i'll tell you i was uh planning to do my own solo record um i was planning to make uh the quintessential debut solo album of my career um i was about 80 percent done with it um writing the demos and preparing to go in the studio and then uh all of a sudden, Mike Varney from Shrapnel Records says, dude, you got to check out this this 16-year-old guitar player. He's really good. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever, great. Let me hear it. So he sends me a tape of this guy, and I'm like, yeah, he's pretty good. And that was the end of it, I thought. And then, and then, uh, and then Mike says, why don't you get together with this guy and uh, just, just see what he's all about? I'm like, dude, um, I was like totally busy in my own thing and I couldn't have possibly cared less about another guitar player. Plus Varney's always playing me every single guitar player he'd ever heard over the phone. And it was just like, I was kind of humoring Varney because I just wanted to make sure my record went off without a hitch. I really didn't want to know about any other guitar player at all. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure my record got done. And Varney was holding the key to that as I was like borderline homeless at the time. So I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. So I, all right, like send the guy over to my house. So Jason comes to my house, my apartment in downtown San Francisco. And the second he walks in, I just fell in love with this guy. Um, just absolutely the nicest guy you ever met, like totally non guitar player ish. <laughs> He comes in and uh, we have like little practice amps and we're jamming in my apartment. He's really, really, really good. And, um, you know, he still had not developed um, the musicality that he eventually would develop. But he was so incredibly 
dexterous and so quick to pick up on things like we would do these little jams and and i would show him things that i was working on and he could get it under his fingers kind of right away and my stuff is like far from orthodox even then it was really really unorthodox and to see a guy comprehend it and get it under his fingers that quickly it just like sent bells off in my brain i'm like if i'm ever going to play my stuff live this is going to this is going to be the guy who's going to do it with me because i was always into multi multi-layering guitar tracks and doubling and harmonizing and counterpoint and all kinds of stuff that is really hard to pull off live unless you have another really solid guitarist and solid in my case meaning who can relate to some pretty unorthodox things and jason was just picking up on it left and right and his personality was just so sweet it's like I really just had a change, a change of thought. I was so dedicated to making my solo record. But when I started hanging with Jason, I'm like, you know, we could do this together and we could do this live. And if, if anybody I would want to do it with, it would be this guy. And um, so I, I scrapped my solo record and I found places to put Jason in on the first Cacophony record. Um, I found little things that he did on his demo, a couple things I really liked. And we kind of, we drew from those things and, and, uh, I, I gave him some spots to show his playing off. Um, and, uh, he learned all of my stuff that I'd done previous to, to that, to make the record. And, um, so he did a lot of recording on the record, but, uh, to be honest, he really didn't come into his own until after that record because now he had an album uh under his belt and he started writing like wildfire and really really developed his own musical sense a lot more directly after that and uh, on his first solo record and the second cacophony record but uh i just fell in love with the guy from day one and then uh, nothing has changed since yeah he jason's absolutely wonderful uh you, i gotta love that guy um when we look back at your career, going back to the days of Deuce and Hawaii and stuff, we're looking at almost 40 years of career. You know, you're looking at 80, 81, something like that. Um, those nine years, though, in Metallica, not Metallica, Megadeth, are the ones that are sort of the most notable. Talk to me if you can or, or if you can sort of, you know, give me a resume of, of, of what those nine years meant to you and why do you think fans, sort of out of all the, the time you've put out there, those are the ones where they say, yeah, this, that's his career. That's, that's the special stuff. What was yeah, we're, we're not going to go there. We're not going to talk about that at all. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, then let me move on to, to uh, Mike Varney. You brought him up a couple of times. Um, he, of course, uh, is the head of Shrapnel Records. Talk to me about the importance to for to the scene of Shrapnel Records, because this is sort of the one label that has given guitarists and instrumentalists a voice and a platform. You know, uh, Geffen Records and MCA aren't really signing these kinds, but here's Mark Varney and Shrapnel. Um, just talk to me about his importance and, and just make, sort of creating this scene. Uh, I never considered myself part of any scene like that, and uh, I never really... <laughs> the only time I hear about it is kind of lateral, like 
when the, you know, people talk about it in the way you're talking about it. Um, I just kind of always did my thing and, and I guess other people did their thing. But the, the thing about Varney was, like you said, he gave a lot of people a chance to at least put their music out when Geffen and MCA type of labels would not even have heard of it. And that just, uh, it points to Mike Varney's like love of what he does. And, um, he just did it for a love of his own, his, the music that whatever music he loved, if he loved it, he wanted to help the person doing it and not necessarily for the biggest commercial gains, obviously, but he was also a smart businessman and he knew how to make uh, a business out of what he loved. And I have ultimate respect for that. And, um, he certainly, you know, put my records out at a time. Well, at any time, there's never a time for that kind of <laughs> uncommercial music. So, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people owe a lot to him. And aside from the record label, he was always very instrumental, no pun intended in, um, hooking up people with other musicians to further their careers. And, um, he was the go-to guy, you know, when anybody needed a guitar player, you know, Varney knows everybody. So like, uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many people's careers were positively affected by him. So, uh, I think he's a great guy. Yeah, he, he really is. Um, Japan. Uh, years ago, you, you, you pack up and move to Japan. What was it about that country that you fell in love with? And, and what, is, what was it like for you to sort of set up and establish a life there? Because it's, it's one thing to be a tourist, but it's, one thing, but it's a very different thing to sort of say, I'm taking everything and I'm heading over the pond. Um, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's insane, really. It's really quite insane. <laughs> Um, uh, but, uh, what can you say? Um, sometimes if you're a, a, an artist and I really don't like that term, but it's a little bit more appropriate than musician in a lot of cases, um, you have to follow your muse, which is another terrible cliche, which I also hate to use, but I can't think of anything better. Um, you know, there came a point in time where I was listening to Japanese music 24 hours a day and no American music. American music was really turning me off. And at the same time, Japanese music was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this music exists. And I was just buying boatloads of CDs in Japan and bringing them back and listening to them on tour. And every different style, every different subgenre and every different mix of every genre, I was just eating it up. And there was so much that I liked. You know, if there, if there was 10 songs in the top 10, I would like nine of them in Japan. And the 10 songs in the top 10 in America, I would go, I don't like any of these songs. And maybe I like one song that's like number 52 or something on the chart. And I'm like, I really should be in the kind of musical environment where not only can I enjoy the music that's around me, but I can add my own voice to it somehow. I knew that if I got to Japan, it would work out, but I didn't know how it would work out. I just knew that it would eventually work out. And, uh, I just uh, took the plunge, so to speak, and uh, it's blown my mind how what a great idea that was. Yeah, it really is. It, I, I, and that's one country that I've always just wanted to go to and haven't gotten out there. Now, you also in Japan have worked with an artist named Nase Aikawa. If, 
Yes. And excuse excuse my uh, my ability to pronounce names. But it's all right. But she's of course known for J-pop. Um, right. t- talk to me about that scene because that that's that is so far removed from um, you know heavy metal and some of the guitaring you're known for. Uh, just talk to me about getting into that frame of mind and working with her and what what that offers as a challenge for you musically because you know to plug in and turn up a Marshall is one thing but to create J-pop I would assume very different it's totally different uh Icon honestly was the first um J-pop Japanese music scene uh artist that I actually collaborated with over here and I joined her band as pretty much as soon as I go to, got over here, which blew my mind because for years before, in, in the late 90s, I was just blasting her CDs on the tour bus and the airplane and in, in my car. I was just one of her biggest fans. I got to Japan. Next thing I know, I'm in her band. So I was just on cloud nine. And, um, you know, the thing about J-pop that a lot of people outside of Japan don't understand is it's not a sonic sound j-pop can include metal that's heavier than cannibal corpse or something like that j-pop j-pop can also include music that is lighter than who's light over there i don't know adele something like that yeah. i don't know it can so, include selena everything. gomez right it's not a sound in in american music like the sound of heavy metal is characterized by distorted guitars and heavy drums and stuff like that and no keyboards and stuff like that. And, um, but, and R and B sounds like R and B rap sounds like rap. It has, it's a sonic description. J pop is kind of encompassing the melodic, the types of melodies that involves and the types of melodies can be interpreted in a very heavy, dark, gruesome manner, or they can be just the ultimately pop and light manner. And it's still J pop. So, Sometimes J-pop can be very, very heavy, and um, that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. And in Aikawa Nanase's music, when I first got here, you know, one of the things she liked about me was she had just heard my latest album at the time, Music for Speeding, and there was a lot of kind of heavy stuff in there, but the melodies were um, kind of copacetic with what Japanese people would relate to, and those are very strong um, kind of melancholy melodies and uh, that's what she picked up on and so having me join her band kind of added an ev- uh, uh, edge of heaviness to her music and also allowed me to uh, kind of kind of inject my sound into the Japanese music scene as a beginner so to speak and um, that was really what got me my start over here and uh, we did uh, some albums and touring and a lot of touring, big tours, 25-show tour in Japan, which is unheard of for uh, an uh, international band. But sometimes domestic bands do that kind of long tour in Japan. And she got my feet wet over here. and It was really a, a great start. Yeah, and, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned that, that it, it's heavier. Because I, I, I buy all my CDs from Japan, and I'm always on the Japanese websites. And so I see a lot of J-pop stuff and all the imagery that seems to be associated. Just to me, but just based on the imagery was that it was very sort of fluffy and, and sort of, you know, Tiffany, Debbie Gibson-ish. And, and I'm glad that you, you corrected me on that because... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so true. But even when, even when stuff is really fluffy and, and candy girl pop, 
there's going to be a couple songs on that album that are likely done by someone who is super deep, heavy, heavy metal. That's the thing. Like the artist overall may have this kind of cutesy image, but within that, there's an interpretation of super heavy stuff. And that's something that's very taboo in America. I mean, whenever it happens, like, like if some kind of a pop singer does like a heavy metal type of song, it's so half-assed. I mean, I'm sure you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's like, it's like this, is, this is our little heavy metal song. But over here, when the same candy pop artist goes for like a heavy metal song, they really do it. And uh, that's what I love about that. I mean, it's not like a love of a genre by itself. It's a love of the interpretation of doing something super heavy, super danceable, super poppy. Whatever image they want to go for the song, they don't let the genre define them as an artist. The, what defines them as the artist is the content of the music, not necessarily the sonic interpretation. Yeah, you're very right about that. I've seen artists over here do that, and and it's just so disingenuous. You just go, oh, come on now. You know, who who is this for? Um, Your Hawaii Vixen and Deuce albums have been announced to be um, re-released through No Remorse Records. Were you aware of that? And if so, um, how do you look back at those albums uh, from from your early part of your career? You know, I've signed so many bootlegs. (laughs) over over the years of all that stuff that um you know it, it really blows my mind that people have this stuff and it, i'm flattered of course but uh, embarrassed at the same time it's a very strange feeling but um not with the deuce stuff though the deuce was my first band and i have very very um wonderful memories of that whole thing and um uh i often get um people asking me to uh release that stuff and i'm just not interested in it getting involved in that at all there's so many bootlegs out there and i'm not but uh um i'm still very good friends with the the guitar player singer of deuce tom gaddis and he told me that uh someone he knew wanted to release it and asked for my blessing and i'm like if you're into it i'm into it because we're we're just like still very very close and um, so I don't really know much about it, but uh, yeah. it's interesting. The stuff is very important part of uh, my, you know, whatever. I, it's I, I still love it, and, and I love the guys in the band very much. Yeah, and and I'll and I'll finish on this because we're running out of time. But but from those days to now, Wall of Sound. How do you see yourself in terms of a guitarist? How have you matured? How have you uh, gotten better? If that's the right term. But just how do you sort of see that 40-year career as a guitarist? Do, you know, do you, you, you cringe at the early stuff and say, I've got it now? Or are you always like, no, the next album's going to be the the one? I don't really cringe uh, at stuff, but I, I don't really look back at stuff very much either. Um, uh, I'm definitely way, way more confident now than even three, four, five years ago. I think I finally got um, somewhere where I'm really super, super excited about the music I'm coming up with and the way I'm playing, and and especially my playing. I'm very happy with um, the stuff that I've played on Inferno and Wall of Sound in particular. Um, I'm a better judge of my playing now. I'm a better... 
I know how not to ever repeat things that I've done before a lot better. And I'm so much better about emoting the notes that I want to play the way that I want to play them in a more interesting and unique way than I've done before. So like if I were to listen back to something from maybe five, seven years ago, I would probably think there's some cool ideas there. I like it. Um, I like some of these things, but some of the phrasing, the guitar phrasing itself, I would do so much better now and more pleasant to me right now. I would do it so much uh, with, I'm trying to, I can't think in English right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I, I would, I would express things better and more, uh, the fluidity, more, the flu, I don't know about fluidity, but the more depth, more exactly what my heart is saying, more grotesquely, more right. romantically, more, just more better, <laughs> just right. more better. I with, mean, uh, with more oomph, right? Well, that's the word for with, it. With more, more cojones, more, more everything, more pussy in it. <laughs> it's some more, uh, just, just more of that good stuff, you know. And uh, I think the longer you do music at the higher level, the the higher the level you go to make your music, the more intricate your process is. The more you understand your strengths and weaknesses as uh, someone who's trying to be an artist and a player. So I think I've figured out ways to do things better. And I think a lot of it lies in being very conscious of where exactly the note starts and where it ends and what's in between the notes and what is really necessary and not necessary. And those tiny, tiny details all piled up into a mountain of tiny details create something better as a solo guitarist, as a lead guitarist for anybody, not just myself. I mean, uh, the space between notes um, or the lack of space between notes, the whole concept is lost on uh, a younger version of myself and probably many other people. But nothing stands out more to me now than what happens between the notes and what notes should and shouldn't be there. And it all comes clear that the more you play at a, at a higher pressure level, the more you know, the really important things come clear to you. And, uh, I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, fog has constantly been lifted <laughs> and I just see things clear every single day. I'm so fortunate about that. And it shows on wall of sound and I'm, I'm really, really pleased with the playing on that. And I cannot recommend it more because of that. Yeah. And I, and I think, uh, the reviewers and the critics have, have also appreciated that because every review I've read, has been nine on ten, nine point five on ten, ten on ten. And really? Oh yeah, absolutely. Go go look for um, Wallace Sound reviews, and one after the other, they're all like ninety and above. And it's like wow. And I'm not kidding you. I'm, I actually you're making me tear up over here, man. <laughs> no, I, I'm not kidding. I did the research, and I and I looked at a good dozen of them, and every single one was a nine and above. And I was like, wow. Cause, and I also listen to the album on, uh, and uh, you know on Spotify and all that, and it just it it there is that that fluidity and there is that, and and I have to be honest, I'm not a fan of instrumental music generally, but this one I was like, yeah, that that's you know this is speaking to me, this is good, this this is a cut above that normal sort of 
you know, bumblebee nonsense that you that you get, and, <laughs> right? And and this was not bumblebee nonsense. This was really well thought out, well put together, well um, framed, and and um, it, it was really well done. It was really well, well done. Thank you very much. And I think that's a great term that you just heard, used, and I never heard before. Is well framed, and um, this is so important, especially instrumental music, and the framework to which I put the main melody or the main themes on top of. Um, I spend about 90% on everything else other than the main solos and the main melodies and all that. It's the framing. It's the what supports the melody and what makes it matter two minutes down the song or four minutes down the song. Framing the song. Oh, my God, this is something that is really, really uh, grown over my career and something that I just pull my hair out over working hard on doing is framing these songs. And that's probably why when you hear them, you're not like going, this is, this is an instrumental. I'm bored. You're just getting into the music, hopefully. Yeah. And it's well, all about it, the framing. Well, it, it's about the framing and it, and it, and it seemed to have purpose. And I've heard a bunch of instrumental albums over the years and, and you just go, well, why are they doing this? It's just sort of, going nowhere and it's just sort of saying look at me play and i didn't get that sense with this album i really got a sense that you were that that it was trying to speak to you and i was trying to say something and and that's that's an honest to god review i'm not trying to just you know kiss your your your, your tuchus or anything it, it, it was well, it, you know it had purpose and framing it. yeah i appreciate it and then we can probably leave this with like yeah, an advice type of thing, actually, because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all high that you've been praising this record so much. But uh, I think what happens and I get demos and CDs like every day on tour and every day from everybody. And uh, I think what happens is you have a lot of really super talented guitarists or instrumentalists of any instrument. And what they do is they just throw together any old thing any old beat, any old backing music, any old thing, and they just rip all over it, and they just play their ass off, and I'm like, well, this guy's got dexterity, but this music sucks beyond belief. Um, and I think that is a very normal thing for like maybe a 15-year-old, 17-year-old who's got some talent on his instrument, um, but if you don't show that, by putting it in a wonderful, wonderful frame, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to give you the reaction that you just told me about Mitch, yeah. when you just think it, it's, why is he doing this? Yeah. And, but you know what, that's just like the framework, man. And it's the first time I've ever heard anybody say that you said it I, well framed. And, uh, that just struck a chord with me because, you know, I could play nicely guitar over anything in the world. So now I have an album, 50, 60 minutes of music. What do I want to play over? That's more important. So uh, I really created these worlds that I could pretty much play anything. And the, the frame is so cool that it's going to work. So uh, the frame is so important, at least to me. And I think to like any of my you know, younger fans and people who are admiring my music and stuff like that, they ask me all the time, how do I do it? And the framework, man, it's the framework. Yeah. yeah. I think and, I'm on a tangent on this framework. Yeah, and I think... That's a good word. And I think that should be the the title of the next 
Marty Friedman Allen. Just call it framework because <laughs> it's perfect. But Marty, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure. Sorry for that little blip before I, I wasn't told about uh, rules and regulations, but we moved on, and it, it it sounds great. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Likewise, Mitch. Hopefully, uh, see you in Canada sometime. So, or in Japan. Yeah, I, I you know Japan and Australia are the two places I haven't been to, and and. You know, I'm, I, I just hit 50, and, and if I don't get there before before it's too late, it'll be one great regret because I just Make love it. I love Japanese culture. I just I just love and and oh, great stuff. Make it happen. Yep, yep. It's gonna have to be a plan. And if you and when you get to Montreal, uh, if there's anything I can help you with, be more than my my pleasure. I'd, you know, very nice. So there you go. Uh, I, I would I would say goodbye in Japanese, except I don't know how to. Uh, well, how about? For- <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, au revoir. Au revoir, mon amigo. Thank uh, you. I'm Cheers. See you later, man. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Cheers. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Bear Mattress is designed for optimal cooling, comfort, and muscle recovery so you can sleep better and perform at your best every day. Go to BearMattress.com, that's B-E-A-R, Mattress.com, and use code ROCK50 to take $50 off your new mattress. The Bear Mattress uses eco-friendly materials and was developed with insights from sleep experts, professional athletes, and engineers to create a super comfortable and supportive sleep that is up to seven times cooler than traditional foam mattresses. The Bear Mattress uses FDA-determined salient textile technology so your body can recover faster, sleep better, and improve performance. Buying a mattress in a store can cost thousands of dollars, but Bear Mattress starts at just $500, and every size is under $1,000. The Bear Mattress is made in the USA, sold online and ships free right to your doorsteps, making it easy and convenient for you, my loyal, wonderful listeners. Buying a Bear mattress online is completely risk-free with a 100-night in-home trial. You get 100 nights to try out the mattress, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you 100% of your money. That's right, 100 nights absolutely risk-free with no hidden charges or fees. Name the best mattress for active lifestyles by Gear Patrol. Go to Bear Mattress, that's B-E-A-R, mattress.com today. And use promo code ROCK50 for $50 off your purchase. And tell them Mitch sent you. That'll always get you an extra something. Pretty sure. The Serial Killer Podcast, hosted by me, Thomas Weiberg Thun, is the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were what they did, and how. Join me as I sit down bi-weekly to bring you, dear listener, into the dark land of serial murder and psychopathy. The show goes into graphic detail on the most infamous and lesser-known serial killers from around the world, with each episode covering one unique serial killer. So far, the show has covered serial killer superstars, such as BTK, Jeffrey Dahmer, and the Yorkshire Ripper and lesser-known killers such as Elias Abuelazan and Anatoly Onoprienko. Be advised, this show is not for children as it takes you deep into the twisted world of ultimate evil. 
You can find me exclusively at podcastone.com or on the new Podcast One app. Also, don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to Rock Talk. A big, big, big thank you to Marty Friedman for uh, for that great conversation. And of course, uh, do check out his album, Wall of Sound. But now let us move on. And I won't give you the same long speech about festivals and all that. So let's get right into this here. Uh, we are going to talk to Ron Bumblefoot Thal. I have known Ron for many, many years. He, in fact, participated on my Kiss tribute album, A World with Heroes, that uh, raised money for a hospice in uh, my town locally here in Montreal. And so a big thank you to Ron for having done that. And uh, so we've we've had a lot of conversations. The last interview that we did that wasn't uh, uh, featured here, um, we spoke a little bit about uh, guns, but we we tried to deviate away from it and stay away. And so this time... We get a little guns mention in there, but we really focus on Psychotic Symphony, their new album, um, with Sons of Apollo. And you've heard about it before, because I had uh, Jeff Scott Soto on, who sings on the project. And uh, next week, I have got keyboardist Derek Sherinian. So I have got sort of a Sons of Apollo month, but every one, Derek, Jeff, and uh, Ron here have different perspectives, different stories, and a different way of framing everything. So let me just get right into this. Here is, from the band Sons of Apollo, guitarist extraordinaire, that is correct, the one, the only, Ron Bumblefoot Fall. We are speaking with Sons of Apollo guitarist Bumblefoot. Uh, of course, he's been around for many years in many different incarnations. Good day, Sir Bumble. Good day, Sir Lafon. Yes, now, we, we've obviously known well, Sir each other. Mitch, Sir Mitch sounds better. I'm sorry, Sir, Sir Mitch sounds a lot Sir better Mitch. than Sir Lafon. Now, Sir Lafon sounds like an old 1700s French dude that, you know, Sir Mitch, that works. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for Sir Mitch. Now, the, the fun thing about searching for Bumblefoot information on the net is that I got a lot of how to cure Bumblefoot in chickens, but not so much about your history, which, you know, which is always the, the, the challenge when looking stuff up. But, but talk, let's talk Sons of Apollo up the front here. Um, okay, and then we're going to talk Google searches. Yeah, then we'll... there are little things that you could put in there. Like if you put, I think, a minus sign and a word, it'll <laughs> ignore things that say like bumblefoot chickens. Like if you put bumblefoot <laughs> and then a minus chickens, I think that's how you get it to uh, not to, to, list everything that has to do with chickens. With chicken, no. To, to skew it properly, you have to put in uh, guitarists or Sons of Apollo, or of course. Uh, Guns and Roses seems to work, but all right, let's see. So, Sons of Apollo, you've got Portnoy, Sheehan, Sherinian, and of course, uh, one of my favorites, Jeff Scott Soto. Um, Hell yeah! Talk to me about putting this together because the last time we spoke, and it literally was like six months ago, we were talking about Art of Anarchy and Scott Stapp and so on and so forth. So that's right. I was in Greece. I remember. Yes. So, right? so talk to me about this project and. And and the challenges of putting together new bands and new brands and getting people to, to pay attention, because it, it's not uh, 1978 anymore. It's not as easy. So It is not. Yes. Um, yeah. Now it's all, it's all about awareness. Like the, the big challenge used to be putting out great music. Now it's just letting people know you exist. 
Um, I'm sure you hear that all the time from every musician. It's the same thing. It's just, and it's not just music, it's anything. We are so inundated with information now and so much comes to us that it's all, you know, just finding that needle in a haystack and getting that needle noticed. It really is. In fact, let me, let, let me just jump to this because the last time we did something, we purposefully left out Guns N' Roses discussion because you didn't want to go there and all those sort of clickbait sites, that's the first thing they pick up on. Um, is that something now that, that, that you regret in terms of you don't want to talk about that or is that something because it is part of getting people to pay attention and say, hey, I'm in Sons of Apollo. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I did this other band. Well, I don't want to use their name right. for attention. That's something that's not about them. You know, that's, that's sleazy towards them, and I don't want to do that. And, you know, I want to be respectful. So I don't want to mention it if it's not in context and, and use something for something else. Gotcha. Which seems reasonable. All right, so let's talk Sons of Apollo. When does this band form? And uh, talk to me sort of about the vision that you had, because when you get together with a Mike Portnoy and a Billy Sheehan and a Derek Sherinian, they are definitely more from the progressive world, the prog world, as, as folks like to say. Um, talk to me about how it comes together and, and how, through Art of Anarchy, you still had time to get this one up and going. Well, Mike and Billy and I have jammed over the years, and I did jam with Derek one time at uh, Progressive Nation at Sea a couple of years ago. Um, actually, with Billy as well and, and uh, Tony Harnell singing. And so we, we all, we do have a history. And I toured with Mike Portnoy with Metal Allegiance. We spent a week on a tour bus together, things like that. I have I've laid guitar tracks for uh, uh, an artist that, that Billy Sheehan had produced, uh, things right. like that. So we all, we know each other. We, we've worked together in different capacities. Uh, so we weren't strangers to each other. And Mike sent me an email. He said, you know how we've always been talking about putting a band together at some point? <laughs> well, I have a situation I want to see if you're interested in. And, and he told me about it and it sounded great. And the plan was we would just jump into the studio uh, for 10 days in March and we would write and record the whole album. And... I was like, yeah, yeah, let's bang it out. Let's let's do this and see where it goes. And and it's just one of those things where you don't overthink it. You don't. You just jump in and do it. You you jump into the water and and figure out how to swim. And before we got together, Derek and I and Mike, you know, we would be sending each other riff ideas just so we have something to start with when we hit the studio. And then we got in there. I was like, all right, let's pick a riff and just start building. And we would write things there as well lots of things and and that was it we just spent 10 days writing and recording and playing live like a band like the three of us tracking together playing parts and making songs and then when billy got off tour uh halfway through he joined us and uh afterwards when when jeff was finished touring uh he laid his vocals after the music was done and at that point, I went home and started laying my, my guitar solos at my own studio. Um, I didn't want to do that while they were all there waiting because 
you know, we had to, we only had 10 days to bake this cake. And I wasn't going to spend any of that time on the icing if I could have done it elsewhere. So it was right up to the limit. We, we nailed it right up to the you know last hour. We got everything done and that was it. And, and I am, I don't know if surprise is the right word. I just, yeah, I guess uh, I'm surprised at how much of a big reception it got. And I don't mean that, you know, to put it down. It's just, you know, I knew people would care, but, but wherever I go, I just got back last month. I played in Japan, Thailand, Malaysia, Bangladesh, all over Ireland, toured all over Romania, went to Moldova and then Poland and Denmark and then all around France. And every single place I went, everybody was asking about Sons of Apollo. When are they coming here? When are you guys going to come here? Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it's a great album. And, yeah. and, and what I have noticed from my perspective is that folks aren't looking at it and saying it's a great band because Billy Sheehan's in it or it's a great band because Mike Portnoy in it. They're saying it's a great band because we've seen those videos that were po- posted on YouTube and they sound bloody great. And so the music, cool. in fact, is speaking beyond who the members are, you know, the, the attraction is like, wow, look at that, you know, Billy and Derek and, 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 and Ron. And, but the music, it seems to be what is turning people on first and foremost, which is really exciting because when you see these sort of super group things, it's usually, well, who's in the band? And let me see if I'm interested. And here people are, well, let me hear the songs. Oh, yeah. Now, who's in this band? And so that's, that's, that's the great thing. And now, talk to me about that timeline, about really sort of crunching this out in that short period of time, because when you look back to sort of the classic bands, the early Kiss, the early Black Sabbath, the early uh, bands like that, albums were done in nine hours, 12 hours, three days. Yeah, they um, were just, it was basically, it was like playing a live gig that you recorded, and then maybe throwing some overdubs. Yeah, and, and so you've been in, a, in, in positions where you've had albums that have taken forever and always, and you've had this. Um, talk to me about sort of, this process and does it capture the essence of a band better when there's not all this time to overthink and overthink and overthink? Oh yes. Yes. This is the best way to do it. Uh, with art of anarchy, there was a week and a half of us in a room day and night, just writing and demoing. And it made those songs have that band spirit, the real thing that you only get when shit's real. Um, with, you know, an album I did before that, in France, it was me and John Jorgensen and Paul Persone, a great French artist, and Robin Ford. And we made an album together called Paul Persone and the Lost in Paris Blues Band. And in three days, we recorded and finished uh, 14 songs. Uh, a lot of them never heard before. We just talked about the songs for 10 minutes. And then we played them all live, completely live, first take. That was it. Uh, maybe a second take on some of the songs. And it was that way. And the best stuff, the most real, authentic, true, honest, having that spirit stuff happens when you play together as a band and you're feeding off each other. And, and one person's energy is, is raising the bar on the others. That's how the good stuff happens. You know, we have all this technology that allowed us to do things in a more convenient way. But with that convenience, there is an absolute loss of, of other things. It's a trade-off. And the technology, I always say, is supposed to be our assistant, but we've made it our boss. And 
that's the mistake. And we rely too much on the convenience. We should all, as bands, get in a room and do it for real. And that's what's going to start making masterpieces and things that truly touch people. And when we just allow ourselves to be human and real, and just because we can perfect, I shouldn't even say perfect, just because we can quantize something exactly on the grid, uh, that doesn't make it right. You know, if we did that to John Bonham, no one would give a shit about him. You know, if we if we quantized his kick and snare and everything else and then use drum replacement software to get a different, you know, that same old shitty cardboardy sound, there would be no John Bonham. Nobody would know his name and nobody would care. And nobody would care about Led Zeppelin because a good band starts with a good drummer. Yeah, and and if you look back at, at, at the ones I cited, the early Kiss and the early Black Sabbath, part of their charm are those you know, missed notes or those, you know, uh, beats out of sequence. Like, if you were to go fix all of that, do you know how stale, paranoid as an album would exactly. sound? It, it, and so... And that's... Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the problem with today's music is that we've made, made generally, music has become more disposable because it doesn't have that, that human imperfection that makes it beautiful. And that gives it character, and it's something that we can relate to and, and feel touched by. Well, it loses its soul. So now, so so talk to me about where you're going, because when you look at the band and you see Billy Sheehan, he's on tour with Mr. Big, and you see Derek Sherin, who's got Black uh, Country Communion, and and of course Country Jeff's Bre- uh, Jeff's got his Retribution uh, album that he's going to go uh, work in the clubs and stuff too. What is sort of the plan for this band? Is this like we just sort of book, you know, finish 2017 and 2018 is Sons of Apollo, don't book anything? Or is this one of these where that's you just... That's the plan. Okay, that's the plan. So it's not one of these where you sort of that's... fit it in between everybody's 87 schedules. Um, no, we all talked about this. And, okay. and starting with uh, with our, the Cruise to the Edge that we'll be playing in early February, uh after that, it's supposed to be all Sons of Apollo. I mean, maybe there'll be breaks in there when we can do other things, but really the focus needs to be Sons of Apollo, where we get out there and play everywhere and just turn the thing into a, a really solid touring machine. Now, now for you, is this a band that you really want to get out there and then in 10 years we'll do another interview about the fourth album or is this like okay we've made this one album we're gonna book 2018 and now my commitment's done i can go back to being ron the solo artist or ron the art of anarchy guy um what sort of your aspirations for this as a project i don't know you just got to see where it goes like if this thing does well and it's really making people happy uh then of course i want to give it a lot of priority and will i have the itch that's not scratched for producing other bands or making some horror movie soundtrack or or doing more solo stuff and doing more music camps and and you know doing more bumblefoot tours and all of that yeah that's gonna happen that's always gonna happen um, but just making it all work. Uh, there, there's always a way. There's always you know, a way. If, 
yeah, yeah. There, there's, you know, because we all have other things. So I'm sure that if we were touring nonstop at some point, we would all want to take a break to do our other things because every single one of us has other things that we want to uh, give proper attention to. So that's the tricky thing about a band like this is that you have five guys that have all these other things going on. So yeah, it can so. make it, yeah, it, it can make it challenging to to juggle. As, but as long as everyone commits when they're supposed to commit and everyone is in agreement on the on the schedule, then it could be a very powerful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now yeah, it, it'll be great. Let, let me let me talk about Cy. Uh, Psychotic Symphony and, and, and musical direction. Now, I'm going to quote this. This comes from the Prague Report, which is a, a site that talks about Prague. And it says, Imagine a Prague metal missile pointed with mathematical accuracy or nearing the end of its journey to hit a target because that is precisely what happens. It is a musical explosion of atomic proportions. Um, which I'm sure is exactly what you set out so, to make. <laughs> so they, they didn't like it. No, they, they, they loved it. But no, but, but, <laughs> but talk to me about this, because because of the pedigree in the band, you know, you look at Billy and stuff, he's got the, the David Lee Roth and, and the hard rock stuff, and, and Derek has, has been on stage with Alice Cooper, and, and there's a, but there's also the... How did you decide musically which way it was going to go? Do you want to sort of focus more on the prog elements that the band that the members are known for or is this a band that as you move along to maybe album two and three more rock elements will come into it more you know sort of uh alice cooperish kiss sort of simpleish. Oh, like, no, I, I would rather take it even you know crazier more progressive and over the top and try and break some new ground because i think we all can but with this thing i don't think we went in with a plain thing. This is what we're going to sound like. We just do what we do. And when you put it all together, you know, it's kind of like when you put pepper into the recipe, you know, you're going to get pepper and pepper doesn't have to say, well, I'm going to try and be like pepper, you know, pepper is pepper, salt is salt. Uh, and that's what happens with, with really every band is that is that if everyone is just being who they are, you kind of know what you're going to get and don't have to think about it and don't have to, tailor it to any certain thing or, or, you know, we're all going to bring in who we are and what we do. And kind of sounds like I thought it would. Right. A, a musical explosion of atomic proportions. <laughs> right. That's... Well, to me, you know, just something that, that, you know, guys who have a very, uh, each one, a distinct musical personality that comes together and, and has all their inspirations and loves of, classic prog and classic rock and classic metal uh yeah um art of anarchy uh, which we spoke about i guess somewhere around april of this year 2017 uh talk to me about that band for a second where where are we with that has that sort of been rolled up and we'll see you later or is that one that is that's like still there still gonna tour it and we'll see you in 2019 <laughs> Oh, well, I'm not trying to lead the was, witness, this, by the way. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> All good, man. Uh, you know, this year we did two tours in the U.S. We released the album. We do have some acoustic versions. We actually have a whole acoustic version of the whole album. So maybe we'll put that out as well for our shows. We'll see what we can do. But it's hard to say at this point. You know, we, we definitely we were relying on 
the business folks to have things prepared for us for 2017. Uh, and now 2017 is coming to a close and we were, we did whatever we were able to do with all that. So, yeah, yeah we'll see where, yeah. we'll see where it goes. Now, um, when you were, uh, in that other band, uh, there, the, the, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. No, but when you were with them, uh, there, there was, there was a perception and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some fans that you were just, you know, you, you were just that other guy. Talk to me about now being out on your own, being in Sons of Apollo, because people actually get to see that Ron Bumblefootthal is an incredible, incredible guitarist. Is there a certain... Thank you. Well, it's Um, true, but but there was that that comparison before, like, well, it's not this. And and, and I always felt it to be very unfair to you. Uh, Is there sort of a, a freeing or a freedom to say, hey, look at this, and people can actually say, like, wow, the... Guitars and Sons of Apollo is a son of a, you know? Um, oh, here's the thing. I'm, okay. You know, 22 years ago, when I put out my first record on Shrapnel and Roadrunner, uh, The Adventures of Bumblefoot, this crazy, progressive, uh, guitar-heavy album. And, you know, in Japan and, and Young Guitar, you know, Readers Poll, one of the best newcomers in the top three, and... and uh, you know, it made a, a bit of a splash at the time. And I was doing things that are not unlike Sons of Apollo. Uh, and I continued putting out solo music and touring and things were going very well. Uh, shows were getting bigger and bigger. Uh, everything was growing. And then I joined Guns and it sort of deleted the definition next to my name and changed it to not flash. And I didn't want to say that, but that's with no soul. Yeah. Like, like everyone, like immediately it's, it's as if what I did for years before that suddenly didn't exist. And the only thing people were looking at is that uh, I am the replacement guy that could have been anyone and have nothing to offer as an artist or creatively or anything like that. And that's not true. And that's not who I was. Uh, I was me. I was that same person that just joined a great band and we were going to make some music together and, and go out and do shows and make people happy. Uh, yeah, That was what it was about. And then after eight years of that, and during that I did put out uh, an album and uh, bunch of singles almost you know being as much of another as another album and and did an acoustic ep and produced a ton of bands i did other things during that time and then afterwards went right back to everything i was doing you know uh yeah and but I, but i could TV see that and, and mm-hmm. well i mean and, and i and i and i didn't want to say it but that but that's essentially it and and I sort of felt the same way about Bruce oh. Kulik and Kiss. You know, when, when the Revenge album came out, he was, wow, this is Kiss 2.0. But up until then, he was always the guy that was just not ace. And I just thought, well, that's not fair. Right. And, and I sort of saw that so, going on with you. You're, you're the guy who's not Slash. And I went, well, that's not fair. I mean, he's a fucking great talent. That's well, not, you know? Yeah, but you know what? That's what happens when you replace an icon. Uh, <laughs> right. 
But and this gives you a chance to be an icon yourself. I wasn't really yourself. replacing. I, you know, I wasn't replacing Slash. I was replacing Buckethead, who, you know, you know, there, there was a line of people. There was a lineage that that I was part of, and but, you know, from the outside, from a quick glimpse, it's just you know that's not the guy I know from, you know, from the heyday, and and never will be. But so after that. Uh, you know, get back to doing my own thing, but it, it was, it felt like it was a little more of a battle to be recognized for who, who I am musically as a, as a musician, as an artist, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it became a thing of, you know, before guns, when I went to do a gig, cool. I was doing a gig, no questions. Afterwards, I went to do a gig and promoter was like, well, what's he going to do? Just play guitar parts to guns and roses songs. And <laughs> the booking agent would be like, no, you know, he has, 20 years of of music and like have you watched that metal show yeah it's like well that's one of his songs that that they used as a theme there's a there's a big following here and there and 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 it all just sort of dwindled like by not nurturing the solo thing and not keeping that the focus the primary focus of who i was it withered uh but now as I'm putting out music and I'm doing lots of tours and doing everything that I should be doing, it's all coming back. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I'm sure the, I didn't replace slash. I replaced Buckethead is going to be the uh, headline. Everybody's going to run with, but no, but, but uh, jokes, <laughs> jokes aside though, does it, and, and I don't want to get all psychological on you, but the, it sort of feels like you get, you get yourself back now because now you're not that I'm not him. I'm Bumblefoot. I'm in, well, I'm Ron, let's say. Well, now I'm getting, he's not Petrucci. <laughs> right, he's not Petrucci. <laughs> no, but, but, but there's got to be a great, and, a great sense of like. A shout, out to, to, a shout out to John Petrucci. I love the guy. Um, you know, great, we, great we, talent. We've kind of known each other for many years. He's actually said some very kind things about me back when I was just kind of up and coming years ago. And, and uh, you know, if I'm going to be compared to anyone that that's, Best of the best. That's a good so, one. But cool. but, it, but the, is there is there sort of a, a renewed sense of self without getting all psychological that like hey people are coming to this band to see Ron Fall they're not coming to see the guy who's not this or who's not that who's not you know, it's got to be nice to just be hey it's me it's my band these are my songs these are my riffs there's got to be a, a great sense of of well it definitely it takes some of the baggage away. I mean, having that with my own thing, having that with Art of Anarchy, having that uh, even with uh, Fragile Mortals when it was with DMC and Rob Dukes and Rob Machete, or uh, you know, and of course with this as well, you know, it's you know that that was a type of baggage that that came with it that it would have been nice if it wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> so it really would have. And enjoy what was happening. But I, I think have... part of it is now I'm playing my own. You know, I'm playing songs that I I was part of writing and recording and part of the of creating. So that makes a difference to people. It does, and and I I see it from the media perspective in terms of the reception. People are talking about Sons of Apollo 
as a band. They're talking about psychotic supper, a uh, psychotic supper, uh, Tesla. Sorry, uh, psychotic symphony. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I'm old school. I know Tesla. No, but they, but psychotic. Yeah, symphony, Tesla rules, man. That you, you gotta love Tesla. love Tesla, but, but, but they're seeing it as this is an entity. This is a band. This is a, an album. They're not seeing it as oh, it's the ex guy of Dream Theater. Oh, and. And you get that sometimes when the music's not good and the album is sort of, you know, third rate. People go, oh, yeah, God, the ex-guy of Dream Theater did it. But they're not saying that. They're saying, man, this, this album is great. Well, they're and sensing that it is. It's, it's real. You know, they feel the band thing. They don't feel the, all right, this is just a, a project with no heart. You know, they, they can tell that it's people that are passionate about it and, and truly created something together as a band. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I see it also, and, and I, from fans that I've spoken, that they don't see it as these guys cashing in on pedigree. They're actually creating something oh, no. new and exciting, and, and that's great. That's absolutely great. And uh, let's hope for a, a part two. Let's, let's hope that you're talking about a number two at some point. I hope so. Like you said before about, you know, hopefully in 10 years, album number four, well, hopefully in 10 years, album number 10. Well, I, I would like and to see And with the way that... Derek writes, Derek is such a music machine. That guy, he's already sending me riffs for like, here's something for the next album. Check this out. What do you think? <laughs> well, you know, listen, we, we talked old school in the past about, you know, Sabbath and Kiss doing albums in, you know, nine hours, nine days, whatever it was. Um, but there was also, they, they did two albums a year and, and we've lost that. And maybe it is time to get, maybe not two albums a year, but maybe it is time to have, you know, every March there's a new album and not every third year or, hey, let's run a six hour. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's time just to get back to that old way of in and out and let's not overthink this and let's keep pumping stuff out. Yeah. I, you certainly got the band, the guys in the band that can do it. You know? Yeah. So. Well, cool. Always a pleasure, Ron. And uh, there you go. Absolutely, man. Looking forward to chatting again soon. Yes. Uh, well, and, you know, the next uh, 10 years, there's <laughs> plenty of time. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure that you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, that isn't the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they're not available. With TrueCar, you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a TrueCar certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. Next, TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car that you are looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to TrueCar users by the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. There are over 13,000 TrueCar Certified Dealers nationwide. You will work directly with a TrueCar Certified Dealer contact. TrueCar users are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they are connected with a True Car Certified Dealer. True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident 
car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVaughn. Mitch LaVaughn. And uh, welcome back. Big, big thank you to Ron Bumblefoot Thal. I always get a sense that our chats are somewhat uh, metaphysical and philosophical and somewhat uh, deviate from your standard rock interview. But uh, there you go. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to Ron. And let us finish today with somebody who was in the Sex Pistols. There you go. Not just a band, but a cultural icon movement kind of um, thing. Uh, so we talked to Paul Cook. He is back with The Professionals. And it is sort of the, a new band, but really is an old band. But there's some new members, so it's not really old, but it's not really new. But anyway, the, the, the Professionals are back. And I also talked to Tom Spencer, who was in the band, and uh, bonus points for uh, having put me on speakerphone because uh, nothing says good times like an interview on speakerphone. But uh, anyway, uh, here is from the Sex Pistols, the Professionals, uh, Paul Cook, and of course, as Tom Spencer. Enjoy. We are speaking to Tom Spencer and Paul Cook of the band The Professionals. Uh, pleasure, gentlemen. Nice to have you. Thank you. Yes. Um, let me get let me get started here with uh, just the band itself. You know, it was it was sort of it formed out of the ashes of the Sex Pistols, and here we are in 2017. The new album is What in the World? Sort of talk to me about getting the band up and active and and going, and you know what's sort of the plan. Well, this is uh, this is Tom speaking here. Um, this is uh this is what we, we me and Paul met. Uh, uh, playing uh, as guests for Ginger Wildheart at a show at, I think, the Town and Country Club in under the Forum. And we kind of hit it off, really, doing a guest spot there. And then we, we're from the same, pool, from the same area as my grandparents, you know, from the same bit of town. And we just got met every now and again down the pub. And uh, then when they were talking about getting the professionals back together, there was, at, that, at that point, Steve Jones was going to be ideally tempted over. So they asked me if I'd come and cover rehearsals on guitar and vocals until they got him to come over and then over time it kind of became apparent Steve was not traveling anywhere um and by that time the band had started sounding good and we were happy and it became the thing it is now yeah uh, talk to me a little bit um uh, before we get too deep into professionals just working with ginger of the wild hearts because in north america he is incredibly overlooked and yet He's probably one of the best songwriters that England has ever produced, and and I and I and I mean that seriously, not you know facetiously. He he just writes wonderful, wonderful stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a very talented man, you know. And, you know, I love the World Arts; they're great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so say about Mark, I'm surprised he hasn't made it big in America. Well, things are very influenced by professionals. He loves the professionals. Yeah, he loves the professionals. Yeah, so. So, so let me let me ask Paul. Um, Paul, for you, what was it like to to get the professionals back up and running after all these years? Well, to start with, it was just a bit of fun. Okay. I was work I was working with Paul Myers, the bass player, playing with a guy called Dick Goddard from Subway Sex. I don't know if you're aware of those bands, but I've been playing with Paul. Yep. And then Ray Ray was around. Ray McBrady, the original guitarist. And we uh, just uh, started to have a, 
have a little get together to see what happens and it, it, it was sounding good and then that's where Tom came into it. He says, well, obviously we need a singer and this was all just for fun until we, we got it up and running and um, we took it a bit more serious then once we realised, you know, we done a gig at the 100 Club which went really well and we was getting some real good feedback from people about the professionals. I didn't realise how kind of influential we were really with a lot of other bands around that time, around the same sort of ilk in music, you know, and then um, that was it. And then we fell out with Bray, the guitarist, unfortunately. Steve, like Tom told you, Steve was no way he was going to do it. So that's where all the guests came into play when we were recording the album, because Bray, Bray was no longer involved. Talk to me about some of those guests, because you have influenced uh, a whole generation of musicians, including uh, Duff McKagan from... Uh, Guns N' Roses, and you've got Phil Collin from Def Leppard. You, of course, did Man Rays with Phil. Um, but yeah. talk to me about having them uh, guest, and what do they add to what in the world? Well, I just got, you know, there was a, like I say, situation vacant on the guitar, and I thought, well, this is an excellent opportunity to get some friends involved. And I got the address book out and started phoning people, and they were all very enthusiastic, which was great. I mean, I had to persevere a little bit with some people, and it was it took a while, but all those guys, what you said, were like fans of the professionals, like Billy Duffy and Duff and Phil Collins, and there's Mick Jones is on there as well. And so it sort of evolved like that, really, and uh, it was such a great way to do things. And they, they all brought their own different flavour to each song, I think. In a lead guitar sense, I mean, basically it is a, you know, heavy, poppy, rocky album, guitar-wise, which is pretty um, basic standard. But they all they all brought something along on the on the lead breaks and stuff like that, which was great. And I think uh, that you know we we recorded everything as a three piece uh, to put the songs down, and and then you kind of need another personality on those tracks. I could have played the lead guitar here, there, and everywhere, but you know there was enough of me singing and doing all the kind of rhythm guitars and bits and pieces and it was great to get someone else in and one of the guys we got in was uh, Chris McCormack from Three Colours Red and Grand Theft Auto and all that sort of stuff and he's now become our live guitarist or fourth member now so that was good coming out of it. Yeah so, so let me ask this to you Tom you're coming into a band that that had uh, you know a pedigree and people had a, a certain expectation what is it like for you coming in? Do you sort of say, okay, Paul, tell me what to do and I'll just do it? Or do you say, hey, let's try to make this a band. Let's try to make it something fresh. How do you approach it in terms of, you know, inserting yourself in the project and then also saying, well, listen, there's there's a history here. Let me not get too, too cocky no, here. It, it, yeah, of course. It, you know, but the whole thing... As, as Paul said, it evolved as a gradual process from a bit of fun at rehearsals leading up to that first gig, and then the reaction was good. So with a good reaction, my confidence grew, and I knew I was doing it right. The, the boys in the band had more faith that I could do what I what I do. So gradually, a working relationship develops, and then we but we realised that ultimately to take this new lineup seriously, we needed a product, i.e., the record, and that's when me and Paul sat down and started writing. And that's another relationship that has to develop over time because you have to bear your soul when you write with someone, and, it, and it's very personal. You know, it's a, you know, you have to be not afraid to say the wrong thing. You know, so again, my confidence has grown through that, through that kind of working development. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And Paul, let me ask you this: 
the band did rise out of the Sex Pistols, and these days we talk a lot about brand names. You know, it's a brand, it's a brand, it's a brand. Had you, if you had to redo it, would you have just continued on as the Sex Pistols and gotten a new front man, or was becoming the professional something very important to establish your own thing and your own sound? Um, no, we couldn't have carried on getting another front man after the Pistols, not after uh, the... Uh the amazing uh, personality and ego that is John Lydon. No, no one else would have came near it. And this is how Steve ended up on singing, really. He didn't really want to sing and play guitar. He just wanted to be a guitarist again. But we couldn't find anyone who could be a good front man. And this is where, where Steve came involved with the singing. He still doesn't like We tried to get him to sing on a couple of tracks, but he didn't want to do that. Don't and you think also the, the great rock and roll swindle, the sort of silly thing and stuff, is a Possibly a full run of discussions, isn't it? Cause, right. Yeah, maybe we go. We, uh, Sorry, it's me interviewing Paul now. We came out of the ashes of the pistols, obviously, but it didn't last too long with the professionals. Again, you know, we imploded, there was a, there was a lot of trouble, and this is why this is. I like what we're doing at the moment. I feel really happy with it. We've got two new members, and it's like, like a new lineup, it's a new professionals, we've got a new album. So we're not wallowing in the past there, going back and re- trying to recreate anything. It's, kind of, it's exciting. Yeah, it really is. Um, if you can, Paul, talk to me a little bit about Man Rays. I actually had purchased both those albums. I'm a big fan of uh, Simon Laffey. had done, of course, uh, Girl with Phil uh, Lewis and, and Phil Collin. Um, what is the, the status sort of that band? Is that sort of done and, and everybody's moved on? Or do we see another Man Ray's album down the road? Um, I think that's sad and dusted, really. We always had trouble with Man Ray's because once we done, we got an album done and done a couple of gigs, Phil was always off on the road with Def Leppard came calling, you know, so it was really difficult for us. But we did get two albums together, and I think the problem was, you know, it was a new entity, totally new for everyone. I think, in retrospect, they could have been... Um, Phil Collins solo albums really would have, would have got a bit more attention to it. No one, no one really wanted to know. Although, like I say, we made a couple of great albums, which was a shame. You know, we played the gigs and no, no one was. It was disheartening. No one was turning up, and Phil was off on tour again, and then all took a back step and so on. So that's what happened really. That was the end of that. Good to play on the Professionals album though, indirectly, didn't it? Yeah, I mean Phil. Even though he's in, <coughs> people might find it strange. He's playing with us. He's, he's such a great guitarist, and he's he's, yep. he's a real punk rock fan still. Yeah, he really as, is. As, as uh, Joe is from Death as well, and uh, that's why he wanted me to play with him. I think you know cause he really appreciated what I was doing, and uh, he's uh, he he plays on a couple of tracks on the album, and it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. The only problem is I've got to learn his parts to play them live. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Phil, it's it's hard to recreate the attack that Phil gets on a guitar because he uses those metal guitar picks, and that's a real barn burner to try to copy. I did. If I if I if I had metal picks, I'd just carve through my strings because I kind of bash the guitar about. But no, he's just great, and also, but he played down sort of for his kind of ability. So there's a song called Let Go where he does the intro and it's kind of pure Johnny Thunders, you know. It's not like his stuff he does on Death Left. He was, he was on fire. He loved it because it was really punky up front. It's to- totally different to what he plays with Death Leopard and he was loving it. Did he take Great. the top off to record it? No, he didn't. Amazing. No. I told him to leave the top on. No nickels. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and I, I, know, I know he's been wanting to do that sort of a more punky thing. Um, 
Recently, I sat down with Noel E. Monk to talk about his new Van Halen book, but we also talked about his time with the Sex Pistols. Um, talk to me about a little bit about that American tour, the 12-day tour. It's become not just a tour, but it's become sort of lore or, or you know, uh, mythical in a sense. Um, Thank you, very cool. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that tour, and, and you know, looking back now, you know, thirty-seven, thirty-eight years later, are you amazed that it was that that it's it's taken on this sort of mythical proportion where people just talk about the tour? Well, it was a was a pretty crazy tour. It was a real crazy, whatever dumb thing to do, going down, playing all the southern states around there, all the cowboy bars and. I'm surprised we survived it, you know. I mean, it nearly, well, I kind of did finish Sid off in a way. It was, it was so extreme. And if you look at clips of film on there, I mean, it, it's madness, you know. We've got police on the side of the stage with guns looking at us and all sorts of things being thrown at us from the rednecks down there and cowboys. And, oh, my God, it was, like I say, I don't, I don't know how we survived it, really. I mean, and Noel Monk done a book, right? Did he document yep. it all I think, yeah, so um, I can't, I mean, I can remember a little bit about it, but you'll probably, he's probably, um, you get more of what was going on from him, really. It was, and we had these Vietnam veterans looking after us, because Walter Brothers, who got our visas for us, didn't want to fuck up, and the band was disintegrating at the time. It was, it was, it was a lot to take on for a bunch of 21-year-old kids, especially that all the publicity that uh, preceded our visit there, you know, all the negative publicity and stuff like that. It was, it was, it was mad. It was absolutely mad. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, never mind the bollocks. This album, again, has taken on mythical proportions. Talk to me about, about putting that album together. And, and did you think that would have such an impact, not just in a musically, but on an entire generation and culturally, because it really was, it, it's a cultural icon, never mind the bollocks. Yeah, I mean, when we got the band together, we definitely wanted to shake things up a bit. We didn't realize how much we would shake things up. We definitely wanted to change things, and, but there was no big plan or manifesto. Things happened uh, kind of naturally. One thing led to another, and, but the great thing about it is that we made a great album out of it. We made sure we got a great producer to do it, which is uh, Phil, uh, Chris Thomas, who produced a lot of rock music records and loads of stuff with the Beatles and things. You know, he was a great producer, and it, like you say, it still sounds great now. It's just, you know, that's why we done it. It, it stands the test of time. And uh, but no, we didn't realise the, the impact we were going to have culturally and uh, you know, and musically on the, on the whole generation. Really, well, it influenced me. Uh, I, I, you know, my old man bought it and. Uh, when I was 10 years old or so, my dad bought it. He was a musician. He didn't like it and gave it to me, and that totally affected my grabbing a guitar. You know, so right. there's me. Now I'm here. See? Yeah. Right. yeah. So, it influenced people right across the spectrum as well. It wasn't just music. It was, you know, it was writers. It was artists. It was all sorts of people were inspired by the simple message of just get out there and do it yourself. You don't like what's going on, and you know there, there was all. It, it, yeah, like you say, it, it influenced a lot of people right across the, the spectrum, really. Oh, I mean, it really was. Uh, you know, you look at a band like like Kiss or Aerosmith or Van Halen. They they influenced you know a certain segment of rock fans. Or they, but that album, that Sex Pistol, it, it influenced, like you said, 
it influenced painters, it influenced musicians, it influenced all. It just it just really encapsula, encapsulated an entire culture. Um, as we move forward with the professionals, you're going to be doing a couple of gigs in uh, England at the end of the month. Um, talk to me about those gigs. And, and I read that you're not going to be doing a lot of the Sex Pistol stuff other than, in fact, the song Silly Things or Silly Thing. Um, is that sort of the, uh, the focus? You just want to say, hey, this is the professionals. We're not going to be doing Sex Pistol well, stuff. We do Silly Thing in the set. And... Um We've never done Pistols numbers, but, but yeah, okay. But I mean, we've talked to, because the, 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 the launch of the, the record's out 27th on the M Records in America, but in England it's out on the 28th, which is 40 years to the day of Nevermind the Bollocks. So on that gig, we might have some mates joining us on stage, and we, you know, we might do a couple of covers for that to, to, to mark it, as the Pistols aren't doing anything. It seemed wrong not to. Yeah, so, so then what's the plan for, for touring with the band? Is it just sort of those two gigs and that's it? Or do you hope to get together a full tour and come over to the States, come over to Canada, and, and really sort of get the music out there? Yeah, when we said, you know, what we said earlier about, you know, defining this lineup by making a product, making a record. This record is just about to come out, and then that's when we'll, when hopefully things will happen. You know, we've got a lot of press coming out in, in, uh, in England leading up to the album, and we're hoping we've done everything right and got everything in place to do all those things. We'd love to tour it. We'd love to come back here to play uh, next year. We'd, you know, we'd, you know, so uh, we'd love to play everywhere. All depends on the feedback from the album. I think we've made a really great album. We're really pleased with it. And hopefully people will, you know, latch on to it and well, away we go. So it, it kind of all depends, as ever, depends on how good your record is. Yeah, and I have to say, the, uh, the first uh, track that I heard, Good Man Down, is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's just a great rock song. Um, are these songs that you've written or put on the album, are they all new compositions, or was this sort of stuff that's been sitting in a vault for like 30 years, and you said, hey, let me dust this one off and let's see how it flies, or are these things that you really put together now? Uh, this is me and Paul sitting around his house with two acoustic guitars, starting things off, apart from one track, which is the one on the album where we've credited uh, Steve Jones and, and Ray McVeigh on, because that was an old riff that had sat around since back in the day, the, the, the kind of guitar-y riff that we, me and Paul then took right back to basics and built a song around it. So, yeah, going, going, gone. And then, you know, the li- lyrically on that one, I might as well carry on about it, is, uh, you know, Bowie and Lemmy dying within a month of each other. Um, the story of Steve Jones famously stole uh, David Barry's equipment from Hammersmith Odin in between the Ziggy Stardust gigs. And a bit later, as a teenager, I was working at Hammersmith Odin when Motorhead were doing their bomber tour with a big Lancaster bomber rig, and that was stolen from out the back of Hammersmith Odin. So I suddenly saw the two stories connecting the two people, Barry to um, Motorhead, and of course myself to Steve Jones and the professionals. So that's how that one came about. Yeah, and, and, and you mentioned uh, Bowie and Lemmy, uh, two of the greats. Uh, I, I, as we're recording this today, Tom Petty has passed away. Um, yeah. Any thoughts about Tom? Just just because he, he's such he's another one who's crossed boundaries, just incredibly influ- influential and, and incredibly talented. Um, any thoughts from either of you on Tom Petty? Yeah, it's terrible. They're all dying, and then there was the guy from Steely Dan, and it's been it's nonstop all this year. It's, been non-stop really for a couple of years now someone's always someone dying it's, it's awful and they're not even all that old you know it's like um, it's just making I start wondering how long I've got left I'm 60 already you know and I thought oh my god <laughs> no and it kind of feels like ends of eras doesn't it I mean Lemmy was uh, 
you know, Lemmy was indestructible, you know, and it gave us, it that gave us strength to, to party because, well, you can survive it. Look at Lemmy, and then suddenly that's changed. And Barry's completely unique, obviously, never be another one. And Tom Petty's just an amazing musician, you know, and it's kind of shocking. We were with a girl earlier when she found out, and she was just watching him play live last week, you know, and so it's, it's really shocking and it's, it's boring. They've got to stop dying. I'm getting, just getting fed up with it. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah. It, it really is something, and uh, <laughs> oh, I can't take much more of that. And, uh, Paul, I'll finish on this. Um, just uh, the album, I didn't see it coming. What are some of the memories of putting that album together and, and looking back on it now, uh, when it had come out, 81, so 36 years ago? Is, is that, does that album still hold up to you, or, is there, or do you look at it and go, oh, we should have done this, we should have done that? Uh, how do you look back on I Didn't See It Coming? Well, you're always good saying, oh, this should be like, I, I think the songs on the album are great. I think the production was terrible, but that, that was a lot to do with us being so untogether and the producer not being on the ball. But the, I think the songs are great on it. You know, and Steve, Steve was, again, out to lunch there, and he wasn't around much. It's a shame. Because it wasn't our sound, but I still I still kind of like it in a quirky way. Because like I said, the songs are great on it, but it's not how we really wanted it to sound. We want to sound like, wasn't it? It should have sounded like the new, the new professionals album, really. That, that's that's our sound. Yeah, and and the new professionals. The new album comes out at the end of the month. Uh, it is on Pledge Music right now. You can look up the professionals. What in the world? And uh, Tom Paul, absolutely a, a pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, thank you so much. Thank yeah, you very much. and it's coming out on The End Records in the States. We've got a little deal with a label called The End, and that'll be out on the 27th of October. Yeah, and The End does great stuff out here. They, they really um, work their albums well, and they, 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 they take care of what comes out on that label. So, so good, uh, good on you for, for that deal. Uh, You've got to love those people. Yeah, we're in New York for five days, and they're working us hard. They're running us around, which is great. It shows that they, they, they mean what they say. Yeah, right. yeah, and you got to love that. Thank you, boys. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.